communities are maybe the single most important thing in thinking about sustainability. Yeah. That we are not in it on our own. It's not yeah. about, you know, me being this sort of fierce individualist, growing everything for myself, preparing everything for myself. It's yeah. really, it's about connection. So today's interview is with Damien Luce. He is the director of design for Permaculture Artisans, which is one of the oldest and largest design build permaculture landscaping companies in the United States. Uh, based out of Northern California. He's also uh, an ISA certified arborist, as well as uh, sustainable sites through the U.S. Green Building Council certified, uh, which is like LEED, which is our green building certification. Um, and today we, uh, we had a great talk about all things permaculture. So it's basically like an introduction to permaculture, as well as, you know, we kind of created a, so let's say you had a 40 by 40 space in your backyard and you wanted to put in a food forest um, and grow according to permaculture principles. Like how could you actually do that? And then in a broader sense, we talked about, you know, what what is permaculture and how do we integrate it into our bigger sustainability conversations about the planet and how do we meet our individual needs with the global needs. So without further ado, my interview with Damien Luce. Um, he's a permaculture teacher and has worked with Joff Lawton and Greening his Desert Project in Jordan. Um, Damien, uh, welcome. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So glad you decided to um, talk to me today. So Let's get right into it. Why don't you just tell me a little bit about, um, you know, what brought you to permaculture and specifically to permaculture design. Um, and then I'm hoping that we'll get into um, some really, uh, if not like granular specifics, some more uh, broad-based tools that people who are interested in, you know, creating regenerative and sustainable home sites um, can use uh, around their garden and home. So... Great. Yeah, what brought you into permaculture? Yeah, you know, um, it's sort of an important story, and, and it's not something that I talk about very often, but I would say in a lot of ways, permaculture really saved my life. And I don't want to, like, oversell permaculture because there's certainly some shortcomings, but I came from more of a mainstream environmental world, and everything was gloom and doom, and the world is ending, and, and there's a lot of stuff that's that's very true and accurate and scary out there. But permaculture really has the attitude of saying like, okay, well, what can you personally do to make things around you more lush and abundant and in line with the natural world? And so when I, when I discovered that, it was this enormous change in, in worldview uh, for me. And I just fell in love with this idea that First of all, we can be a positive influence, that, that human beings don't have to be a cancer on the planet, um, that we can be a positive influence and that we can really look to nature for a lot of answers for how to design our systems to meet human needs. And so permaculture is really all about design. And, and I'm a creative person. I'm a visual person. And so doing permaculture design work is both a fit in terms of the philosophy and the ethics and also in terms of how my brain works and the kinds of things that I enjoy doing. Nice. Nice. So what would you, um, 
don't know. What would you say to a budding, uh, someone who's just discovering permaculture or um, just beginning their process to, you know, be more solution oriented um, in their, you know, building a, a, a resilient, sustainable, self-sufficient, even potentially regenerative life? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the first thing is learn everything you can. Um, a lot of people start by taking a permaculture design course. Uh, I'd like to say that that can be, uh, it, it's a great place to start. It can be really expensive and difficult for a lot of people. And so you don't have to go that route. It took me many years before I did my first permaculture design certification because it was, you know, expensive and, and hard to find one. Um, but I, I've always read. So ever since I got interested in permaculture design, I've just read books and books and books and books and books. And there's tons of material out there. There's way more material than when I first started. And um, you... A good reading starting point for people. Like what would, if you could distill down to one or two books. Yeah, fantastic book to start with is Toby Hemingway's Gaia's Garden. And it's getting a little bit out of date, but um, it's, it's so well written. It's just um, Toby Hemingway is a really great writer and he really mm -hmm. takes people from the ground level and he really gets you excited about permaculture and the way things work and the way things get integrated. So I would say I uh, a lot of people do. I, I should get it. I don't think I have it. You don't, you don't have it. Okay. It's I, probably I it, it, so. at one point is sort of the best selling oh, permaculture no, there book it is. out there. Yeah. yeah. So this one. Yeah. I, 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 that's a great one. That's a great one. So that's a good good place to start. And and then it depends on your on your passions and interests. So I like to say permaculture is really oceanic. It it just it takes all of these different fields and materials and and um and ideas and attaches them sort of to this ethic of taking care of people, taking care of the planet and uh returning the surplus. Right. And so, you know, I've read books on gray water, I've read books on rainwater, I've read books on earthworks and swales and things like that i've read books on food forests there's a lot of social permaculture books that are out now so people who are really interested in that realm can read that stuff um well, yeah if i could interrupt i think i'm feeling like i'm trying to hear it through the you know the beginning permaculturist ears or you know someone who really wants to get sort of your take on on permaculture um well let's just start you know so what, let's just start with like a what is permaculture in right. your mind? Like, how would you define it? So the, the most concise definition of permaculture, and I'll go on to say something more complex than this, but the most concise definition of permaculture is permaculture is the art of designing beneficial relationships. Good. And so That's in nice. that definition, we have that it's an art, that it's about designing things, and it's about connecting things together to create more harmony and synergy to go a little bit deeper permaculture was originally a synthesis of agriculture ecology and landscape architecture mm -hmm. and so originally it was about growing food uh, in a way that works the way that nature works by using land design tools that can be replicated. 
And it's right. since become larger than that, but that's sort of the core of the permaculture movement is really about growing food in a way that is in harmony with nature and that uses human design skills in order to create those systems. Yeah, I like the, I mean, for me, the, the, the idea of designing beneficial relationships and, and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and taking care of our own needs you know, yeah. um, not mm-hmm. relying on, on outside systems so much and, and not, you know, not becoming really granular and, and, and insular and trying to provide going backwards in time and trying to, to mm-hmm. produce everything ourselves, but creating those in, interdependent relationships. Right. Um, so uh, I think the, the, the next sort of place that might be interesting to go to is how about this? This would be a good idea because I know a lot of people these days, myself included, are very interested in self-sufficiency. How do you right. use the self-sufficiency in terms of a global context and uh, permaculture in an individual context and how those two merge? Um, when I, I'll, I'll sort of start working on an answer and then maybe you can sort of guide me to where you're going with that. So permaculture really began uh, with the idea of self-sufficiency for people growing for themselves and then potentially, you know, maybe growing to sell some stuff, but it was really about people getting their own water, their own food, their own energy, their own heat from systems that they had built themselves. And so permaculture has some very, very practical tools to help people to do that, uh, in a way that potentially uses less land, potentially uses less time, potentially uses less energy we don't necessarily have to get into sort of all the specific little techniques, but, um, but that's very much the concept. And um, it has Bill Mollison, who's one of the, the original founders, really spread it all over the place and went and taught all over the world. And one of the really exciting things about permaculture is it has techniques that um, are really adaptive to, let's say, people who have very little money and have very little resources that they can often use these techniques, it doesn't necessarily involve a huge input of time and effort and capital in order to do these sorts of things. And so the idea is all sorts of people in all sorts of circumstances can, can do these things and create more abundance. I guess where I was going with the question is, um, I mean, clearly we're not going to produce everything that we need on an individual basis and, and nor would we really want to. I mean, you know, it's, it's, sure. it's not really efficient for me to try to produce everything that I need mm-hmm. or for you to try to produce everything that we need, you need. Um, right. So I guess um, I'm particularly interested in, you know, what is that, that, that area where like how much self-sufficiency and where is the level of, you know, individual self-sufficiency, community self-sufficiency and how do we, um, I don't know how much this, this really gets into your work as a permaculture designer, but I think it's an important concept for us to talk about and to think about, like, how are we integrating, how do we design those beneficial relationships within the context of self-sufficiency and sort of macro community? Because we have to take into account mm-hmm. the macro community as well. They're, they're mm-hmm. always dancing with each other. Yeah, well, I think self-sufficiency, I haven't fully developed this concept, but basically you can look at things on two different levels, a lot of different levels, but two different levels to make things simple. So one level is 
the physical level of how much am I producing for myself? How much you know, heat am I making for my house with a rocket stove? How much food am I growing in a food forest on my land? How much water am I collecting in water tanks? And, and that's helpful to think about those sorts of things and do those sorts of things. But then on the other level is a change in consciousness. So as I am, here's an example. As I am collecting rainwater, I start to realize just how much water I am using for my personal usage and for, let's say, my food forest. And I'm doing some irrigation in my food forest because I live in a, in a very dry summer climate. And so then there's sort of this change in consciousness of like, oh, here is how I am using water and here's how I'm engaged in the water system. Uh, what else is involved in this water system? Who else is involved in this water system? How does that sort of thing work? Um, and another example. So I have recently gotten my house off of fossil fuels. So we have an electric house, we have solar panels, and I'm starting to get a consciousness of like, okay, how much energy do I actually use? How many solar panels does it actually take in order to, um, in order to produce enough energy for myself? So there's the physical level of my house, but then there's my understanding. And then I have conversations with other people about that energy and what I'm doing in my own house inspires other people to do things. And so there's a change in their consciousness, which then also changes the physical reality because they start doing things. And so how much self-sufficiency do I need to have or another person needs to have? It depends so much on individual circumstances. Like if we're talking about somebody in a very impoverished country, um, a lot of self-sufficiency, you know, producing a lot of their own food may be very practical and, and useful. Right. If we are talking about, you know, who's listening to this podcast, it may very well be people in a first world context who might not be wealthy, but let's say have legitimate access to food a lot of the time. And so the primary objective isn't necessarily, oh, well, I'm having hunger related issues, um, but it might be, hey, I want to have a better impact on the planet than, right. you know, supporting McDonald's or whatever. You know, it, it makes me think about when you were saying that, that, um, you know, we have a spring box and mm -hmm. so, and, and we live in a dry climate. Um, you know, it, as you know, we we're out in the woods of Northern California now um, on a larger property. And so I've become very conscious of the water cycles and, you know, the permaculture, mm -hmm. slow it, spread it and sink it idea. And I'm trying to get to a plan to get into my upper watershed with my neighbors to try to slow and spread and sink so that my aquifer stays charged in the dry months. Um, but it, it makes me think about, you know, from a, from a permaculture design standpoint that what you're talking about, the human capital part of um, developing a deeper relationship with place and with mm -hmm. the life systems um, and I don't really have anywhere to go with that other than personally uh, I've, I've seen it change me and just the way you're talking about and the way that I'm much more connected to the life cycles and, and, and personally the way mm -hmm. I enjoy trying to grow more of my own food and seeing how much food I take, you know, and how, mm -hmm. how many times do I have to go to the store and um, how many times do I have to leave the site and, 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 and that, but on the other side of that, the, the self-sufficiency, you know, there's a, there's a Gandhi saying um, that first you must become independent 
and then you can mm. become interdependent. And I, I think it's powerful. I think having that sense of self-sufficiency is a powerful symbol to the world. And I think it changes our own consciousness about ourselves. And I will say the first area in which I am self-sufficient in a sense, you know, I don't want to oversell it again, but like having enough solar panels on my house to fully run my house 10 months out of the year changes my consciousness, you know, like that really feels good. That feels empowering. That feels like something that I want to share with other people and help other people. And so permaculture can do that like, with lots of areas. What's it that? makes me think like there should be um, permaculture um, financial um, advisors to help people, you know, get out of debt. So, so yeah. of, their, of their consumption and, and that designing a beneficial relationship rather than a positive negative relationship with, yeah. uh, with debt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, another piece that I want to say about this, I think is really important is going through that personal process of, of transformation and becoming more independent. Um, it really teaches you about the larger system and it makes you much more like, it makes you much more conscious about how all of these larger pieces yeah. work and what needs to change on the larger level to make things easier. So I do a lot of technical water design. We're looking at water tanks and seeing some of the barriers to people installing those. How can we change those in a way that makes it easier for other people? Right. It also makes me think about, um, you know, we like, we watch a lot of uh, business insider worldwide ways why it's so expensive and still standing series and there was one on the madagascar vanilla and it just kind of blew my and we've been watching so many of these and for so many things we take like you know that's the one that's coming to mind but there's so many things that you look around your house that are coming from all across the planet and have this amazing amount of energy put into it um you know the madagascar vanilla is just takes an incredible amount of people. It's got to be precise. They hand pollinate the, the orchid. Uh, and, you know, and there's, there's all kinds of craft and, you know, people are trying to steal the right vanillas. And then there's ecological costs, the forest versus the, uh, you know, the farming. Yeah. And I would say that's a core piece of what permaculture is, is permaculture helps to take people who might otherwise be primarily consumers and really helps turn us into creators both for the benefit of ourselves and for the benefit of of people around us and again not only does that create a physical change but that really changes a creates a change in consciousness mm -hmm. of how we view ourselves and i think we view ourselves in a much healthier way when we see ourselves as generative not just consumption yeah exactly that's that's great yeah. All right, so you got let's let's try to get into some more sort of nitty gritty here. Mm -hmm. Permaculture. Let's you let's just say for example, you just got your, you know, forty by forty backyard spot. Mm -hmm. You want to grow some food? Like, what would what would you recommend in terms of how to do that? How like what? Let's let's just take an example. Like, let's say we're in Zone Nine, Northern California, Pacific, like our area that we know. Like, what? Yeah. What would you What would you recommend someone do, kind of in specifics? Like, 
what kind of tree, what kind of guild, what what sort of spacing and how, sure. what kind of foods, like what kind of medicine, yeah. what kind of water. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing is, uh, Art Ludwig has a great quote. He said, "An edible plant is not edible unless you eat it." So you want to make sure that you are actually planting things that you are excited about eating. Sometimes people can. I made that mistake in my early permaculture years. I made that mistake of buying all the craziest, wildest perennials I could, and they sat in my <laughs> right so you really want to have stuff that you're actually going to eat and another principle of that design is not just like the plants that you're picking but actually where it's located so you want to make sure you're locating stuff in place that you're going to see frequently and that you're going to want to go out into and enjoy and, and be part of that a lot of people have vegetable gardens that are sort of in the back corner of their yard and they don't go there and they just have maybe they have vegetables that they planted originally and the vegetables just sort of rot because they never get out there and harvest. So you're referring to the zone principle or? Yeah. So, yeah. So in permaculture, we talk about sort of zones one, one through five. And in a small suburban backyard, it works somewhat differently than if you have, you know, a 10 acre ranchette or something like that. But yeah, you want to think about where you're traveling frequently, where you're likely to go and what you're going to see. So if you have, let's say, a vegetable garden, so a lot of times in a practical way in permaculture, have a vegetable garden close to the house or like if you have a chicken coop, it's on your way to your chicken coop or your compost pile or something along those lines. Um, in our part of the country, you have to have protection against gophers or you're not going to get annual vegetables. It's just sort of the reality of gardening. And so commonly we are raising our vegetables in, in some sort of raised bed. Uh, That's where zone one, right? That would be zone one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sort of protection from the gophers. And, you know, what you grow in there depends on, again, what you like to eat. If you want to get really permacultural about it, um, it's nice to combine plants that are going to be beneficial for each other. So, for instance, you can combine things, plants that are heavy feeders with plants that fix a lot of nitrogen. So corn and beans are sort of a classic example. Can, can I interrupt for a second? Can you just do a quick breakdown of the complementary plant types for people? Because that's a really interesting concept with most, yeah. most people don't understand. Totally. So in terms of your annual vegetables, also in terms of, let's say, fruit and berry and nut bushes and things like that, you want to think a little bit about how much nitrogen. So nitrogen is sort of the prim primary nutrient that plants are taking in. They're taking a lot of nutrients. Nitrogen is the biggest one. And plants will use can up I, a lot of them. Can I tell you what I, I recently realized and learned from my own journey that kind of blew my mind? Sure. That yeah. We're the same. Like we are, we're, we take in nitrogen, you know, when they have people on, I learned this, when they have people on feeders, they yeah. have to calculate the absolute, the correct amount of nitrogen. And in us, we call it protein because the right. protein's built up of the nitrogen. Right. Um, but I found mm -hmm. that fascinating that it's, mm -hmm. everybody's just, eating we all need this primary yeah. nitrogen source and we just have to yeah out. yeah totally it, it's yeah it's really fascinating sort of how it all ties together when we're talking about soil we call it nitrogen when we're talking about our diets it's protein you're, you're exactly right yeah. and so the, the plants uptake the nitrogen they make protein in their own bodies in order to do all the things that mm -hmm. proteins do and it's something that gets used a lot 
in different plants use it at different rates. And so something like corn uses a lot and will suck it out of the soil. Something like beans uh, puts a lot of nitrogen back into the soil. And so in permaculture, the ideal is that we have these closed loops that we're trying to help create, like an old growth forest. Not that it's entirely closed, but in a large part, these nutrients are cycling within the system, and we want to keep those cycles as healthy as possible, not bring in outside fertilizer, be it organic or inorganic. Um, we want nature to try to do that work for us as much as we can. You know, that, that brings up an interesting concept. So we're calling it closed loop, and I, I totally agree with the closed loop, but it's, it's also, this just occurred to me, it's also taking this idea of being a creator from mm -hmm. just your own creation to you're trying to make your whole landscape be creative instead mm -hmm. of being a depletive system it's it's an it's, it's an expand, right. expanding system in terms of its life and biomass and diversity right. and, and and generation that's it's a, it's a really neat way to think about it i've never thought about how mm -hmm. we're trying to treat not only create ourselves as creators but create our whole home space as a creative home space yeah, actually, that, that's a really fantastic point. And so instead of having a consumptive landscape that you constantly have to mow and, yeah. and fertilize right. and all these, out, you know, all these resources into, and, you know, your, right. your landscape itself yeah. is a consumer, you're trying to create a, a generative right. and beyond generative, which is regenerative. And so basically yeah. the definition of regenerative, and you probably, um, you know this, but sort of for your, your audience, a regenerative system is not only a system that generates, but is capable of reproducing itself. And, and that's a tall and, order. And nature does that. Pushing out life and biomass and, and, and nutrients yeah. and everything else. Yeah. Uh, and so just to return back to our basic, our basic, uh, companion planting i don't know exactly what you call it in permaculture but yeah so we've got our nitrogen fixers like our beans right um, we've got our uh our heavy feeders like our corn and then yeah. we're going to have you know like our, our, our deep accumulator which would you want to explain yeah. a deep accumulator yeah so the concept of um, a dynamic accumulator is a term that you often hear in permaculture and the concept is that these are plants that have deep roots and they bring up nutrients from the subsoil and they bring it up to the surface and then make that available to other plants in the world. Um, so plants need a lot of nutrients besides just uh, nitrogen and uh, they get it from the soil. Some soils have more of these nutrients than other soils do. And the concept with uh, dynamic accumulators is they help the other plants in the area by bringing these nutrients up from the subsoil. So you have that for enriching the so soil. You have plants that may create uh, mulch. And, and those ones would be bringing it up and making it available in the root body and then also bringing it up in the leaves and then just cutting them yeah. down and dropping them on the as mulch. Is that for, or, yeah, so, so comfrey is sort of like the ultimate classic example of this uh, in permaculture circles that comfrey has very deep roots and they have really great leaves that are easy to chop and compost. And so as they break down, the idea is right. that they are feeding the soil. I'm not enough of a... Kind of our, your, your... Go ahead. I say I'm not enough of a scientist and researcher 
to give you all the details for how that works or you know when that works or whatnot but that that's the basic concept is that you want plants to help um, feed the soil um, so you're not just putting outside fertilizers on right um, and so we have we have basically your nitrogen fixers your your deep accumulators um, you've got your feeders which are going to be you know your corns and stuff and then and then your insectiaries, right? Those would be those are the kind right. of four that I know. I don't know if there's more than those. Uh, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the insectary plants. So two categories of insectary plants. Uh, one kind of insectary plants is what you might um, think of as just sort of adding to the abundance of plants that are going to bring in things like bees. There's lots of different things that would help pollinate flowers. Then the specialist insectary plants are plants that are bringing in um, predatory insects. They're going to help control uh, the insects that are feeding on your, your plants. So, um, for instance, really small flowered plants. So sunflower family, um, carrot, uh, dill, parsley family, they have these tiny little flowers. And predatory insects often don't have really long uh, mouth parts. Uh, but they need the nectar from these plants in order to get the calories. And then they'll go and they'll feed on things like the aphids in order to get the protein or in order to lay their eggs. So they need sort of those two food sources. And if you have the specialist insectary plants, then you're more likely to get those predatory in insects and you're more likely to have those predatory insects stay in your backyard. Cool. So nitrogen fixers, insectiaries, deep accumulators, and then so what are and then there's so our heavy feeders are you know our our corns and whatnot the things that we like to eat um, yeah. and then is there another I'm, I'm trying to remember now just like a biomass accumulator like for mulching and, and yep yep you can have plants plants that are really good for mulching and it depends a lot on your soil but generally we're trying to increase carbon content of the soil over time. And so anything that is really useful for um, producing a lot of biomass and then that biomass breaks down relatively quickly would be a good mulching plant. What's a good biomass plant for our area? Um, let me think. I mean, comfrey is kind of the classic one and comfrey just doesn't take a lot of work they produce a lot of leaves they respond really well to getting chopped right. um so there's all those things right. one thing just to warn your audience about is whenever you put in country make sure that you're really happy where it is because it's pretty much it's very yeah. difficult <laughs> so, so uh, you know consider that consider that carefully but um it is a very useful mm -hmm. and then so in our in our imaginary beginner permaculture backyard now we've got raised bed garden with gopher screen on the bottom in zone one which is right when we come out the door maybe we got a chicken coop kind of just past it and then you know in the back corner of our suburban lot um what are we gonna put back there let's just say that the back corner is the north side of the property it's simple sure okay great um so north side in theory should give you some good southern exposure obviously it'll depend on slope so the classic thing with permaculture is let's say it's a southern slope and it's the north side of the southern slope it's a gentle southern slope great 
great. So we've got some good sun. Uh, so we've got some good sun. So sort of classic in, in permaculture world is uh, a food forest. And uh, the food forest is one of the most central technologies, you might say, that permaculture has put forward. And the concept with the food forest is this is a ecosystem that mimics the natural world in certain ways and produces a lot of abundant food for people, that it is far, far more diverse than you would typically get in an agricultural food system or even in a typical backyard, and that the different parts work with each other. So we just talked about sort of these different plant groups. So you would have all those plant groups represented. You would have um, your big edibles. So a lot of times the core would be fruit and nut trees. Um, you'd have nitrogen fixing plants, which also may produce food, or they might not. Insectary plants and dynamic accumulators, they're all sort of blended in there with consideration for, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. With consideration for uh, what these plants need in terms of sun and nutrients in water. So you want to be careful to not necessarily overplant everything. So could you uh, lay out an example? Um, may, maybe tell people what, 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 how you would define a guild, and then give them like yeah. an example guild, like maybe a whole tree guild or, or something more interesting, like a walnut guild or something like that. That would that would work in this kind of zone nine-ish um, sure. climate. Okay. Um, let's see. So I live in Sebastopol, and Sebastopol is famous for specifically Gravenstein apples, but but apples. Uh, now people know it for wine, uh, but it used to be apples were really the king. And so we could just start with an apple tree because apples are sort of a universal northern hemisphere food. Um, so when I'm planning for people's backyards, a lot of times I like to do multi-graft apples. So you have a bunch of varieties on one tree. Um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, apples are really tricky for pollination. You need another kind of apple to pollinate your apple tree. And so if you have a multi-graft, they will pollinate each other. The other thing is a lot of times if you have a full-size apple tree, there's just way more apples than you can possibly use yourself. And so if you have a multi-graft tree, then you have fruit coming in um, for many months. Um, and so it sort of spreads out that harvest for your family, and that's really useful. So with the apple tree, uh, good to have some nitrogen fixers because as it's producing the apples, it's using up some of that nitrogen. If you can get a hold of it, a really nice bush to get is a gumi. A gumi is a high nitrogen fixing bush that also produces uh, edible berries. And so G-O-U-M-I. And do you like them? Have you had them? Um, let's see. I have. Um, don't know if I've had a gummy berry. I've specked them for some of my jobs, but I haven't been around long enough for them to grow up. Um, but but I have a client who discovered that I had planted a gummy in their yard after some time, and was like, "Are these edible? Can we eat these?" And they ate them, and and they really enjoyed them. Generally, people really enjoy uh, gummies that I've talked to. So gummies are a really good nitrogen fixer. Um, some, let's see, some other really common nitrogen fixers that you can get at landscaping stores. Um, there's a genus of plants called Eliagnus. Gumi is actually one of them. But there's a bunch of other ones that are just like gas station plants. Like you'll just see them. They're like bulletproof kind of plants. They're super tough. 
And they have berries that you can eat. They're not necessarily super exciting to eat. They're just a um, low water, super hardy plant that they're not delicate. They can take a lot of abuse and they'll, and they'll keep abusing. You can also get edibles, things like um, garlic runner beans that are perennial and they'll produce food and they also will. And then, so let me say something about guilds. I think a lot of times people have ideas about sort of specific guilds for specific trees. And I think there's some truth to that. But a lot of times we're talking in generalities. Like we have a tree that produces food, you know, something that produces some nitrogen. We have insectary plants that are, you know, bringing in insects. We have dynamic accumulators, which are helping to make the soil healthier. And, um, and there, there may be exceptions for things like walnuts and some things are really hard to grow walnuts. Um, but a lot of times you just sort of need to hit categories of your trees. Or, I'm sorry, of, of the different members of the guilds. So as, as oh, you're okay, building... So I, I lost it. You lost me for a second? Go ahead. As you're I building... I lost you for a second. Go ahead. As you're building the system, again, one of the things that you really want to think about... Well, let's see. Two things in relationship to one another. First of all, you're not necessarily planting things overly tight because you want to make sure that plants have access to light and water that they need in order to grow. Um, and you want to be aware that your system is going to change over time. So your major trees like an apple tree or a walnut tree, um, as they get bigger, they're going to cast more shade. They're going to suck up more water. And it's going to be more difficult to plant stuff closer to the trunk of those trees. And that's, and that's fine. These systems evolve over time. And you sort of want to think about how they're going to evolve. So walnut trees especially can get enormous. You know, they can get to be 100 feet tall and, you know, maybe 40 feet wide or something like that. And so you want to you wanna just think about what might this look like as things move forward. What's the compound that the walnut trees put out? Do you know what that's called? I, I do. Yeah, yeah, juglone. Juglone, yeah. It's something in um, in the walnut leaves and the walnut shells. It, there's actually some controversy over, over how much it suppresses plants around it. So, yeah, and, I heard that, and I was yeah. curious if you have any ideas about what, what you can grow in a walnut guild. Yeah, well, I do, I do have lists of plants that are supposedly good for growing in walnut guilds. A lot of these things I sort of keep in a database and um, mm -hmm. don't necessarily have everything in my head. But my understanding is that um, that juglone may be less of a problem than people thought in the past. And that one of the primary problems may be the walnut simply shading things out and, you know, taking too much water. And so you really need to take those things seriously. You need yeah, to have enough. That's really interesting. Space. I've heard that too. You really want to make sure that there, there's enough space so the plants are, are getting their needs met. In permaculture systems, plants that do well in part shade and full shade can be incredibly useful because you end up creating a lot of shade with all the trees and shrubs and, and whatnot. So here's a great example. Uh, we put a lot of currants and gooseberries into food forest designs because currants will produce 
fruit really well in part shade conditions. Uh, there's another one. Well. Say it again. Gooseberries will do well in part yeah. shade as well. Yeah, they're they're close cousins to each other. So yes, right. they both they both do well. There's a, an American native fruit called pawpaw from the Appalachians. Pawpaws do well in part shade. And so it's, it's helpful to sort of get a list of those plants that, um, that do well in the part shade or full shade conditions, because most of the things we think of eating are really full sun plants. And if you plant them with too much shade, you, they're just not going to be productive. They're not going to be happy, and they're not going to produce the fruit that you want them to produce. Same with water. You want to really have a water system set up so that things are getting enough water so that they will be productive. So let's talk about just a little bit. So in our, uh, in our imaginary design here of our suburban backyard and the gentle south slope facing slope and uh, the north is in the very back of the yard and we've got our, our raised bed garden by the house. We've got our chicken coop off to the right. And then in the back, we've got our apple guild and maybe a walnut guild right next to it. And it's got mm -hmm. gooseberries and currants and it's got some comfrey and it's got some insectary some carrot family, I can't remember what else, what else you said. Sunflower family. Sunflower family. And, and so now we've got all that. We probably are doing this backwards, but before that, we've probably created some swales or some rainwater catchment or both. So why don't you talk a little bit about that aspect of the, the food forest design? Yeah, right. So you really want to plan for the water ahead of time and not try to go back and, and do it later. And so permaculture is famous for shaping the earth in order to slow spread and sink the water. So modern engineering tends to design systems to get the water off of the property as quickly as possible. We're really doing the opposite. We're really trying to get the water to go into the ground so that you're charging the ground so that the plants can use that water. Uh, swales and rain gardens are the primary tool for that. And so you're thinking about where that water comes from off of hard surfaces oftentimes. So driveways, sidewalks, patios, roads, garages, and looking at those. Me, uh, I lost you. Okay. Can you hear me? I can hear you right now. Okay. Hold on one second. I'm going to go see if we can turn off a device in the house because I'm, I'm losing it and it's hard for me to follow what you're saying. Hold on one second. Okay. All right. All right. I don't know what all we missed, but so you're shaping the land in order to slow spread and sink the water. You're thinking about your water sources. So where's the water coming from? Garages, roofs, driveways, sidewalks, things like that. And putting it into these basically depression in the ground. And then thinking about what happens when that depression overflows. Where does it go next? Where does it go next? Where does it go next? seeing how much water you can, you can infiltrate. You do want to be aware that sometimes when plants get super saturated with water, they can get some root diseases. And so you got to look at your particular soil type, see how fast it's draining, look at how much carbon is in the soil, 
see if you have plants that are well adapted to wet soils or not. Generally, your trees you're planting on the berms so that they're not in the bottom of the swales because that's bad for most trees, not all trees. What's the um, example of a tree that can handle moisture? Um, valley oak does fantastic uh, with a lot of moisture. Pears, among sort of the common edibles that we know, pears tend to do pretty well with wet feet. Uh, walnuts, I would say walnuts probably do pretty well in general. And what are, what are the ones that do really poorly with wet feet? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of what is super sensitive. I would, I'd be really careful with cherries in general. Cherries are very susceptible to a lot of diseases. What else really gets a lot of, uh, what about an apple? Um, I'd be careful with apples. Like again, like if you plant it on top of the berm, you're good. You're especially trying to really take care of the root crown. So where the roots stem and what happens in the more peripheral roots um, is less important than really where the root crowns. You know that in this climate where we're Mediterranean seasonal, mm -hmm. um, does it matter that the roots are like soaked all winter long somewhere? Or do you have to worry about that too? It's a good question. Um, well, it, it depends. It depends on the tree. It depends on your soil type. So, for instance, if you're in a really heavy clay soil, it's a very different experience for those roots than if you're in a sandy soil. If you have a really high water table, if you're like down in the flats right by a river, it's a very different situation than if you're high up on a slope on some hill. Right. Of course. Of course. You know, so. Um, well, let's, say, let's say worst case scenario, clay soil, a lot of water. Yeah, so clay soil, a lot of water. First, a couple of things. First of all, you want to add a lot of organic matter to your soil. That's going to help a lot with the drainage. So that can be compost. That can be mulch. You can do a sheet mulch, which is great. Um, and then generally, you are um, designing your system so that you have swales and berms, and your trees are planted on the berms. So they're not swimming in stagnant water. Just to, you know, leave no child left behind approach well, let's say real simple what's a swale a yeah so swale is a ditch on contour so a, a level ditch that runs along um, if you are on the side of a hill and you walked along the bottom of the swale you would be keeping an equal elevation for the length of that swale don't they slightly go down or they so a up? in permaculture terms a rain infiltration swale is generally flat and you have you you're very conscious about where the outflow for that swale is so it's like a bathtub when the bathtub fills up there's a point at which it overflows you want to design the overflow don't let nature design the overflow for you results be very yeah 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 great you're digging out your swale that creates soil it has to go somewhere yeah. so that soil makes your burn. Okay. And and then uh, I, I thought maybe we could just uh, shift gears. And since we have our um, we have our backyard sort of uh, bird's eye view of a, of a food forest garden back there. Um, what, you know, just from a, a little bit more of a meta standpoint, like, like what, 
we already talked a little bit about existentially and, and spiritually and emotionally why permaculture is a good thing it connects you back to nature and your landscape and to people um but i guess on a more practical standpoint like what 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 can you expect like how many calories how much of your food um could you get out of this you know let's say right. 40 by 40 um area that you're planting um let's see so 40 by 40 is going to be um 1600 square feet um 1600 square feet so if um an acre is a little over 40,000 square feet 1600 square feet is um let's say 10th uh one one 40th of an acre um you're not going to get a huge amount of your calories out of that. Um, Very sort of general statistics. The average American probably uses about three and a half acres to produce their food, all their food for a year. Um, If you're vegan, that might be like a sixth of an acre. Um, If you have a food forest, First of all, it's going to depend on how much water you have, the fertility of your soil, how good of a gardener you are. You know, the better a gardener you are, the more food you're going to produce. Um, And then there's also the question of um, are you, you know, what sorts of trees do you have available in your particular area? So maybe you're growing some apples, some walnuts, some um, vegetables in your vegetable garden. Um, You... If you're really good, you may produce bushels and bushels of food. If you're looking at percentages, you're probably talking about, I don't know, 5% of your annual calories or something like that. Right. It's, it's relatively small compared you know, to what you actually need to survive. You know, you know, it's interesting. If you think about it from, you know, the, the permaculture design standpoint, um, it almost makes more sense to... Uh, focus on your community, like all of your neighbors. And let's say you live in an enlightened neighborhood and everybody wants to have their permaculture garden. And then each, uh, each house would kind of have their specialties, you know, like someone's way more into, you know, having chickens and making eggs and another, Mm -hmm. they're way more into, you know, the medicines and the teas and, and, and in that way you compare, because the thing that's, I've been thinking a lot more about is, you know, there's a real power to economies of scale. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I often think about, um, you know, the, 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 the epitome of the, 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 there's two things that, that to me sort of sum up the mistakes of our, um, our recent past. And, and one is monoculture and then the other is plastic. So mm-hmm. <laughs> those two things, and obviously all fossil fuels, um, but those things, and, and if we just move away from, the monoculture into a more polyculture system, like a guild system. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to get rid of the economies of scale and specialization um, and mm-hmm. the modern, the, 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 the benefits of a modern economic social structure. Those are valuable. And they're, they're, mm-hmm. there's not really any reason to get rid of them. We just need to figure out how to create more diversity and integration and beneficial, beneficial relationships within that. So somehow like how do we 
how do we grow? I think on the one hand, like you're talking about how it connects you to the landscape, but mm -hmm. maybe produces some of your favorite foods that you want, but then maybe also produces some sort of surplus for yeah. your community. Uh, yeah. Given whatever your superpowers, like maybe you're really great with cucumbers and your neighbor's really great with tomatoes or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 tot I totally think that's right. And I, and I think that communities are maybe the single most important thing in thinking about sustainability. Yeah. That we are not in it on our own. It's not right. about, you know, me being this sort of fierce individualist, growing everything for myself, preparing everything for myself. It's yeah. really, it's about connection. You know, yeah. permaculture is really about connection and those yeah. beneficial relationships. And I'm yeah. trading my zucchini for your apples and, and all that sort of thing. Right. And and it's not just your neighbors, it's larger communities and larger cycles and, and things right. like that as well. And right. I think once we think about permaculture is not just like what is happening in your backyard, but how you relate to the world and how you're doing people care, earth care, fair share with all of your interactions and getting more intelligent about how to do things, then, you know, permaculture in a lot of ways is sort of growing up and becoming more mature and uh, maybe more deeply addressing uh, the problems of the world than just sort of like my little garden. Fantastic. I think that's a wonderful place to close. We've been burned. We burned almost an hour here. So uh, I'll let you get back to your family and thank you for sharing Great. all your wisdom this evening. And I look forward to, you know, continuing our conversation on some other topics in the future. That sounds great, Mike. Thanks for having me. So I hope that was helpful and you got a lot of value out of that. Um, if you watch this on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel if you want more of this content. So our, our mission here at the Regenerative Home is to help earth lovers live not only resilient, but also regenerative lives with really practical skills uh, in your home and your garden. Um, you know, sort of getting out of the philosophical realm and getting really down to the nitty gritty, like how do we actually do what we need to do to um, provide for ourselves and to care for our planet. Um, so if you need want more information about uh, Permaculture Artisans and Damien, I'll put that in the links and the show notes. And uh, please send us questions, comments, comment below on YouTube or um, wherever you watch, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we will do our best to respond to those and make more content answering your questions so that we can build a more resilient and regenerative future together all right have a wonderful evening signing out or day or whatever time it is that you're listening or watching to this ciao